A new season of Tomahawk Talk begins tonight. It is a very good evening to you and how you be with William Haynes here and you there on the other side of the dial at 89.7 FM WVFS Tallahassee, the voice of Florida State. And you're listening to the weekly sports power hour on the voice of Florida State. So glad to have you with us here all the way up until 8 o'clock where Casey will have new release then. So uh, great to be back in the saddle. William Haynes here with Andrew Cheney and Jack Oliaro, who will be rolling in here towards the uh, the studio where we are now, 420 in the Diffenbaugh building, uh, the Florida State campus. Great show tonight, Florida State football. Their fall camp has been raging along. They had their first scrimmage. Uh, they'll have two of those during this period before game one on September 3rd against LSU. They were in Jacksonville for a couple of days of practice at the UNF campus. So lots to get into on uh, the hottest and most interesting sport here at Florida State. We will have some conference realignment discussion as the hour goes along as well, and we'll cap it off with some Florida State soccer. They have their first game against Texas A&M on Thursday. So um, before you know it, all the sports are getting into the motions here in mid-August. So again, glad to have you along. You can call the show 850-644-1837. Make sure you're following us on Twitter, on X, on Twitter X. I don't know what we call it now, at V89 Sports. We may have to figure that one out tonight as well. Uh, but before we get into uh, this late that we have, let's introduce the crew that will be taking you along the way. And we will start off with Andrew Cheney, who has been providing great coverage for us at V89 Sports for all of uh, Florida State football fall camp, uh, going to the practices and the, the post-practice interviews and all those things. So Andrew, thank you so much for coming in. How are you? Yeah, thank you. I'm doing well. Uh, yes, you can check us out on Instagram and X. We have all the coverage. So... Yeah, well, let's let's get to to Jack Oliar now, and then we can discuss this because I think it's an important thing that we need to get straight away here. But uh, Jack Oliaro not peeking in from behind the glass. He was at the very top uh, with the disclaimer for the very first time ever. Everyone listening tonight, you have witnessed history. The first ever, uh, I believe, Tomahawk Talk producer on air from the production booth. So that's pretty cool. We can pat ourselves on the back for that. Yeah, occasionally they let the cage out and uh, allow me to roam free. So. You, That's always nice. How do you feel? It's pretty cool, right? Can move my legs. Can move my well, some of my legs. Uh, for those who don't know, probably most of you, but uh, I currently have a cut on my foot, so I can't uh, walk currently. So I'm I, when he said strolling in, he was not kidding. I am strolling on a scooter, so that is yeah. Well, glad to have you along as we go into the season. That'll be a fun thing to have you kind of interjecting our conversations with notes and such uh, from behind the glass. Like I said, we always say you're peeking in, and now you can uh, have a voice from back there as well. So yeah, let's. Has anyone heard anything? How do we know? Are we referring to it? Are we still going to stick with Twitter? Are we going to go with X? I don't know if that makes a ton of sense. Twitter X is my proposal. The URL still says Twitter. Now, that could just change in a moment. Elon's got the power to do that. But I still call it Twitter for namesake. It's called, it's still called a tweet unless something's changed or unless it's called a post now. But Yeah, they're now right reposts instead of retweets. So the whole world is on its head right now, right? So, I don't know. We'll, we'll figure it out. Twitter, X, whatever you want to call it, at V89 Sports. Follow us on there. Uh, the show, as always, available as a podcast the next day. And so that link will go out on there whenever we do that. And all the articles that we uh, post from fall camp that Andrew has been writing, v89sports.wordpress.com. And those are always uh, posted out there on our socials. We're on Instagram as well. So, again, fall camp, conference realignment, Florida State soccer on the docket tonight. And uh, we'll start with 
Florida State football. They had a scrimmage last night, and they had a. It was close to the media, but they did have some some post game interviews, if you will, with the coordinators and such. So first of all, Andrew, because you were there in in the Zoom room, what's uh, what did we learn first of all with uh, last night's scrimmage? Well, certainly. Uh a lot of positives it sounded like uh big emphasis on the defense there was a big goal line stand that got talked about talked about by pretty much every coordinator we heard from all uh the special teams offense defense and co- head coach Norvell um they talked there was a lot of talk about explosion they felt like they were pleased with the explosiveness but a lot of talk about the need for consistency and uh Byron Turner sounded like a big standout as did Brock Glenn and that's that's what I heard is it was by design that Jordan Travis wasn't to play a ton in that game because you can't really put the green non, non-contact jersey on him. I suppose you could, but it defeats the purpose of the exercise. You put Brock Len, the, the freshman back there, let him get hit, get the defense kind of some live reps, but it seemed like Glenn was, was kind of impressive. And uh, we were talking about this before the show. It seems like that's that's kind of been the trend, right? Glenn has, has done a lot uh, to impress so far. Yes, he's. I mean, you just know when he steps on the field, he's a – big commanding presence in the huddle the thick frame but he moves very fluidly just what uh, coach novell wants out of a quarterback and he's really picked up the system very fast between even from watching him in the spring game versus watching him these last few weeks of practice work and that's how it goes uh, when you're a quarterback and you're also a true freshman a lot kind of comes at you quick and you got to run with it but it seems like glenn has has picked that up, and I did notice that. It was with you for the first couple of days of practice, and he stands at 6'2", I think, just typical quarterback weight, but he's built. I mean, the weight is in the right places, so to speak. He's a guy that could probably take some hits and stand in there, maybe run around a little bit as well and, and be in good shape. So uh, there, there's another quarterback on the roster that I was a big fan of in last year's camp, A.J. Duffy, now a redshirt freshman. It seems like he's kind of fallen behind a bit, lost in the stack, right, with uh, how good Glenn has played? Yes, well, Duffy's just, he's uh, he is a little bit behind, uh, still having trouble picking up the offense here in year two. Um, a lot of hesitation sometimes on his throws. He can be panicked in the pocket, but he has also had a handful of uh, great plays, and he's clearly got a very strong arm. Yeah, the fastball, maybe it's just me watching too much baseball uh, lately. What is it with that? But it seems like every ball out of his hand, it's one of the hottest throws you'll see in college football from A.J. Duffy. But if the touch isn't there, and uh, it may not do you a ton of good to throw that way. But uh, Brock Glenn, obviously, in the mix. Tate Rodemaker, I think for now, still holding down the two spot as the redshirt junior and uh, his heroics in Louisville uh, last year early on in the season, saving Florida State out of that ball game. Uh, obviously behind the Heisman candidate and Jordan Travis, who did not play much in the scrimmage last night. The comments that the coordinators made afterwards, Alex Atkins, I know, talked about they like the big plays, and I think this offense this year will be predicated a lot on the explosiveness on the chunk plays, but there's not always going to be there. I think as a defense, it's one of the easiest things you can take away, so... Uh, the small plays, the five-yard, the ten-play or, or ten-yard plays—that's really what you need to sustain drives, and that's what he said they need to work on. Uh, what have you seen, I guess, to that end? Yeah, I, I feel like Florida State's actually been very good on the little plays. Uh, they've done did a lot of uh, goal line work in Jacksonville, and they were able to punch it in very effectively. You can see the depth at the running back position helps 
a lot. Uh, Keziah Holmes, Trey Benson, these are guys that can really can move bodies. And that'll, that's how you continue drives. That's how you extend drives. Uh, but I will say there is a tendency. Johnny Wilson, pretty much everything we've seen from him has have been explosive plays. We haven't seen him make, you know, the three-yard slant, you know, the few-yard out. And uh, Keon Coleman, a little bit more of that. But your two best offensive players, arguably, uh, and they really are pure explosion, it does make you hesitate and, and wonder if this offense is really going to be everything that it could be. It's a great point. I mean, I watched you watch Keon Coleman's highlights from Michigan State, and granted, that's a different circumstance. They didn't have great quarterback play, and I'm not completely solely on the structure of that offense, but all of his highlights are just 50-50 jump balls. Just send him on the, the fly route down the field. And Johnny Wilson, in some regard, is a similar guy, and those are your top two receivers. Obviously, you're built to do those types of things, uh, but the running game last year was so terrific. Trey Benson is back, and, and there's no reason to believe he won't be even better than he was last year. It seems like he's continued to add on to that frame and maybe picked up some speed. You mentioned Keziah Holmes, the transfer from Penn State, who they viewed as a toughness guy, maybe someone on the goal line or short yardage situations that can put the shoulder down and pick up uh, yardage through contact. And then on the other side of the ball, on the defensive side with Adam Fuller, he said they had a, a good goal line stop, a good sequence there. He likes what they're doing in the red zone. Uh, what can you say about that? The defense, uh, certainly the defensive line is the strength of this team. Uh, there's, been, there's been trouble matching up consistently with some of the defensive back play, but the defensive line is always there. It seems to me like, in general, they get the better of the offensive line. Um, not to insult the offensive line. I mean, they've had plenty of good plays, but the defensive line, there's clearly a, a true a, a depth uh, there that's uh, very uh, overstated and uh, imposing. That's the thing about when you're practicing against yourself. Someone's got to win, right? So it's either going to be the offensive or defensive line. And if it's the defensive line, so be it. That just shows you where you're at. You're going to, uh, you know, if the defensive line plays to that ability, you've got some big games early on, LSU and Clemson, uh, where it would help to set the tone at the, at the point of attack. And it seems like that's where they're going as well. And Fuller also mentioning, uh, some younger players, and it seems like they've picked up the system at this point of camp, which is, is all well and good and what you want to see uh, at this point. So they'll have another scrimmage next Sunday. It'll be, I think, in the morning instead of at the nighttime. But uh, this was uh, Sunday night coming off of the, uh, the practices at UNF, so the bus ride back from Jacksonville, which we'll go to now. They were there Thursday and Friday, and they stay in the dorms at the University of North Florida and I think they, they'll do the hard knock style uh, talent show. You know, a guy will show off uh, his singing voice or dancing skills or whatever. They just kind of have fun with it. It's to get away from Tallahassee and that sort of thing. So that's kind of where I want to hit on first, Andrew, about the, the UNF trip because you were there and you wrote the recap. Everyone should check out v89sports.wordpress.com. But uh, how important, how impactful, at least in what they said or what you could notice was uh, that change of scenery over there? Well, Jordan Travis clearly believes that the trip is important. He said that going to Jacksonville tells you how your season's going to go. And uh, we got a little little hints of that from Coach Novell as well, almost as if, like, w when they went there in 2021, I think they knew in a way that maybe some Noel fans didn't what was on the horizon. And then same with 2022, and now perhaps the same with 2023. 
are there things they do in the practice, maybe drills or competitive-wise, that's different from what they do in Tallahassee? I guess that would lend itself to that indication that the team is, is doing better? Well, there's no indoor practice facility there, so everything, there's an error, error of, uh, of heat over everything, and of, uh, there's more bugs out there. You're out in a forest, basically, in a very undeveloped part of Jacksonville, sort of a... Uh, uh, you're in the sticks a little bit, I guess. Although I yeah. don't know how you qualify what counts as the sticks in a place like Jacksonville. But, uh. <laughs> a place surrounded by interstate. How could you have a sticks? But you're right. I was there last year, and I can tell you it is. It's the bugs and all the things. I think they they do it on a, like a rec field or like a spare soccer field or something like that. I know they. I think they put they put the Seminole head on it this year, right? I don't know if they had that last year, so they've, maybe. Uh, they've spent a lot to fix up the facility actually according to everyone all of the sports writers there and everyone from florida state the nice new fencing they were very impressed they thought they made a great host and there, there was a lot of uh, kind words paid to how things had improved i think also the sports writers were happy that uh, we've been given more access this year than in previous years in terms of observation during uh, the jacksonville practices it's always a great thing to see and you have the local media obviously there in jacksonville as well uh, asking questions and such. So uh, outside of, of that part of it, uh, I, I can as well add in what I saw last year being there in 2022 that it, it does seem to be the turning point. It seems like they use that kind of to mark, okay, this is really, we're getting down to, to nuts and bolts here. They go, they go full contact in Tallahassee usually a few days prior to get ready for it. And then it's usually a couple physical days of practice in Jacksonville before they come back for their first scrimmage and now kind of we're off to the races. So uh, we're really now getting into the thick of things. You mentioned uh, the Jordan Travis quote. I think Norvell, right, was, was had some, some lofty praises uh, for, for his team after those, those days of camp. And I mean, that just, uh, that's what you want to see at this time of the year. Yes. He said he called the uh, situation five straight days of going after it. He said, they were pushing everything they have. I mean, this clearly this team has sold Coach Novell on their work ethic, which is always a positive. Yeah, you had a quote in there basically mentioning that the work ethic and the ability to work in adversity and those types of things sets themselves, he sees, from the rest of college football, which, you know, kind of turns some, some heads in, in a good way. So um, all, all are, are good on that front. Now, moving on to what you've seen the rest of camp, they started off, obviously, in Tallahassee. They don't go full contact or full pads to start, but they kind of work into that. Uh, just tell me, what have you noticed? Uh, I know a lot of fans, they may have not seen a practice. They may never get the luxury of seeing a practice because it is kind of behind closed doors. Some are completely closed even to media, but most are just media only. So this is a part of this sport that draws so many eyes, as we're seeing with conference realignment and these TV deals. This this country is obsessed with the sport, but this is the part that not everyone sees. You get to see how the sausage is made in a way, and uh, if you could give us a kind of a peek behind the curtain on, on what that's like. Well, let's just say everything that uh, you really want to know are the things that I'm not allowed to say, <laughs> but uh, no injuries, no depth chart, no formations, but... Uh, it's still very different. Um, I think we have this sort of soap opera idea of how practice works, right? We think of it as, oh, the quarterback's in there, and uh, he maybe he stole the running back's girlfriend, and they're going to scream at each other on the sideline. But uh, in truth, especially in modern college football, 
These are professionals that want to get paid and they love the game and they have a passion for the game, but they want to get paid and every day they're focused on getting paid. Now, they also want to get better as a team, but they want to get paid and that drives it. It's you're watching people go to work. You're I mean, they are enjoying it, but first and foremost, it is work for them and you realize that when you go to practice. I think that's really well said. I've I've been to NFL practices and training camp before with the the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and uh, granted I can tell you that they weren't very good during those years and I've been to Florida State practices and I can tell you I think the the college practices at least at these at this level is even more competitive, even more intense and uh than NFL training camps are. The professional level, a little more laid back. And I think what you're referring to is these guys' careers are on the line, potential careers. They have to make a name for themselves now. And so you see a lot of great football being played. And really what stood out to me is just how quick everything is, how organized everything is. They have the five-minute segments, and they are running through guys screaming in and out of the indoor uh, facility into the outside uh, in between those, and, and they go for a couple hours in that, that heat and, and everything. Uh, it's really well run. It's a testament to the coaching staff and, and how well uh, they do their jobs in getting these players ready. There's a lot that goes into it. I mean, I was there at the very beginning, and they had a drill specifically where they just had a bunch of basically the entire defense lined up on the sideline, and they would basically bring a group of 11 onto the field just to race onto the the gridiron where a ball was placed for the line of scrimmage, just practicing lining up in a no-huddle formation. So it's the things that maybe you wouldn't expect, but they do practice those sorts of things to get ready for a season. So I think it's interesting to point that out and what goes into it. Well, in the NFL... Many of the players there, they've gotten their deals. They know they're going to get paid. They know that they have a nice house to go home to at night. But on the Florida State field, you're competing for NIL deals with Martinez Roofing, with uh, Tallahassee Orthopedic clean, uh, Clinic. So there's really a real energy to try to get those sorts of deals. Not only is there Guthrie's, but there's also uh, the other chicken joint across the street. There's lots of uh, Slim things. chickens Yeah. Now. Canes, yes. A lot of NIL deals. On Fight them. a spot for glory days as well. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's exactly right. keeping those folks alive. <laughs> so from that, I want to go into some more specifics as far as the, the position rooms are concerned because there's a lot of kind of meaty battles um, for spots and for playing time and things like that and how it's going to shake out. I want to start out with, the wide receiver room, as we touched on a little bit earlier with Johnny Wilson and Keon Coleman. And it seems like those are the front runners. Johnny Wilson, obviously the incumbent, had his best game of the season in the last game of the year, over 200 yards receiving in the bull win over Oklahoma. And he played well in a lot of the team's big wins. And then Keon Coleman, the late transfer from Michigan State, all sorts of athleticism for him. I found this out recently. It wasn't... Uh, or he wasn't going to this year if he had stayed at Michigan State, but the year prior, he was on the basketball team. He was in the eight-man rotation for Michigan State basketball, which is one of the most prestigious programs in the sport. He stands at 6'4". Uh, watching him in person, I don't I don't know as much how to describe this. He looks smaller than that, but he can go up for those jump balls. I honestly, with his route running in his hands, I could see him more of a slot guy or going over the middle, but maybe they want him going deeper down the field. But, Andrew, just what you've seen, what is his, you think his best role in a garnet and gold uniform? He's both. He's He can play pretty much anywhere. Um, he reminds me of all the greats in the NFL where 
They'll play in the slot and they'll be open. They'll play outside, they're still open. Sometimes they get separation, sometimes they win jump balls. Extremely versatile. And so to have him, as opposed to Wilson, if you have him on the field at the same time, that really stresses the defense from sideline to sideline with how they line up. And uh, Coleman, as, as we've been talking about with guys playing for the pros, this is a, a transfer portal mercenary. He is there to make a name for himself. And not to say that he's not a team player, because he certainly is, but he is there to put himself on the draft board. I'm not sure he could find Tallahassee on a map. <laughs> well, he can now, that's for sure. I think <laughs> I he mean, came from... I'm not from... sure now. Oh, I think he gets on the plane and he sees, oh, okay, I'm going to go to practice now. Where's the water? <laughs> Yeah, because it's 100 degrees here in August, as it always is. He came from Louisiana, so I think he's familiar with these awful muggy summers, but maybe had gotten accustomed to more temperate weather up in uh, what is East Lansing in Michigan, where Michigan State is. But uh, there's a lot behind him. Kentron Portier, a guy that really has caught my eye since the spring, less than 300 receiving yards last year, but he's been in this program for a while. And it just seems like he's always making the play. He, he can get open, and he's got really solid hands. He had an insane catch in the, in the spring showcase. And uh, maybe not the biggest name on this list, but he's a guy I think that it's poised for a pretty big season. Yes, when, when I've seen him get on the field, he's looked good. However, he had a little bit of a ding in the spring. I don't think he's ever gotten back to full speed yet. Uh, but when you look at him physically, he can line up with the best of them out wide. Gotcha. So he's a guy that may not be available the entire year, but could be a guy that comes up down the stretch. And then after that, you've got another somewhat of a wild card and coming back from an injury. This was all the way back in spring of 22 in Winston Wright, who transferred over from West Virginia and was a good ball player there. A guy I think that's a factor in the return game. I think speed and agility pops out. And a guy I think that would be a great piece in the slot, maybe to be uh, something that Micah Pittman wasn't uh, a really dynamic piece in that position. Yes, he's he's clearly got that ability. Uh, it's just sort of honestly with this wide receiver room when it comes to the three and four, it's just a day by day thing. Who's going to show up? Some days it'll be Burrell, some days it'll be Williamson, some days it'll be Hill, and some days it'll be Wright. And that that leads me now. They've got three true freshmen. I think one of them will probably. I was just I was just going to mention uh, Winston Wright was I don't know if we remember a year ago he was supposed to be the guy. Yeah. Now, granted, he plays a slot, but with Johnny Wilson and the impact he has, that was supposed to be Winston Wright's in a sense. He had that kind of momentum and that kind of impact. It's nice to have that as potentially your slot guy who's not even the main focus and is a wild card in his own right. And uh, ghosts are coming back in the form of Destin Hill. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, the three true freshmen, one of them I would imagine ends up getting the red shirt, but they all may not if they play a decent amount. Hakeem Williams, who I believe was the number three wide receiver prospect in the entire country. Destin Hill, who has been committed or tied to this program since 2021. And uh, Vandravius Jacobs, who was very impressive in the spring and a guy that's got a lot of pop and can break a play for big yardage and can be in the return game as well. Out of those three, is there a guy that's maybe separated himself from the rest? It's Hill. He has he played a, the vast majority of the snaps on Thursday and Friday. He seems to know the playbook, and he works really well in the slot, especially on short routes. A guy that's hungry and, and seems very eager to prove himself, and that's good to see after you know not playing organized football for a couple of years to, to be in that sort of playing shape, and, and very excited to see him take the field. So a lot of weapons to go around. 
but to get the bow to those weapons, you got to have some good protection on the offensive line where we will go now. And uh, a, a guy that, that has been out, I guess, is dinged up. I don't think we've gotten really any type of clarification on him, but Robert Scott, who has been a starter on this offensive line for multiple years, I thought was a fantastic left tackle, has got great mobility, and uh, is a hard guy to get around on the blind side. To me, if he's healthy, he's got to be the starting left tackle, but I know they've got a lot of other guys on the outside that they like. What do you see from that perspective? I, I think it depends who you ask when it comes to Robert Scott. When you listen to Coach Atkins, it sounds like he could suit up tomorrow. When you talk to Coach Norvell, maybe not the same. Uh, but uh, pretty much everything you hear about him is positive. What I've seen from him, he's been solid. I would, really would not know the injury situation if I hadn't wasn't already educated coming into camp on it. Gotcha. Okay, so bless Harris. He is someone, a transfer, who came in the program last year, and he got hurt in the Duquesne game and missed the entire season. He's a guy, to me, I see at right tackle and Scott at left if he's healthy. If Scott isn't, it seems like bless is the number one maybe to be at the left tackle spot. How has he looked? He's been solid as well. I really don't see a distinct difference between the two. They make good plays, but... Boy, they have had uh, some rough moments as well with some of the off options off the edge uh, on at Florida State. Yeah, there's a, you got your hands full if you're a uh, tackle at Florida State in, in fall camp. Another guy at tackle, if Scott can't go, you're going to need one more to, to pair with Bless Harris. Jeremiah Byers, a transfer from the University of Texas, El Paso. And he is someone that, yes, he is making a transition to the Power 5 level, but he's got great size, great agility from what I've read and, and seen, and he, he projects as you know a professional-level tackle. It seems like they, they have a lot of confidence in him to take on that role if needed. Yeah, he's he has shown no delay in picking up the system and picking up Power 5-level ball, which you can't say for every transfer from the lower levels on this team, but he is certainly the one that understands what's going on, and he's ready to face the task every day and so you do have some new faces three total transfers that will be in this position room but you do have a couple of returners uh, to pair with scott as well it looks like marie smith will stay at center dimitri emmanuel jack just when you thought he was out they reel him back in the ncaa coming through probably for the first time ever in florida state's favor awarding him a seventh year of eligibility to yeah florida stay at right guard florida state and ncaa need to find some common ground because it's not it's not going so well uh, in terms of basketball and whatnot but in this case dimitri was deemed eligible to play um i'd also think like exciting players to watch out for jalen early coming back as a redshirt freshman julian armella I've, I've heard nothing but good things out of them and probably looking over to take over the mantle after uh, the transfers essentially run out of their time. Julian Armella is a mammoth of a man. He's huge. Uh, he's a guy when you uh, envision a tackle on the offensive line, he's the type of guy that comes to mind. It seems like he was the only person reporters wanted to talk about in fall camp last year as a freshman, and he's got another year uh, under his belt. So top to bottom, it's a good room. It's been a long, long time since we could say that about the offensive line at Florida State, but such as uh, the nature of 2023 where we are now, uh, a couple more groups before we move on. Let's go to the cornerbacks. Uh, you have Fentrell Cypress, a, a first-team All-ACC player from a year ago with the University of Virginia, comes over 
with all the turmoil uh, that that program is going through, and obviously we want them to, to get back to what they can do. But Cyprus was a, a one of the best players in the transfer portal that comes to Florida State. He's a lock to be at one of the cornerback spots. There's a lot of other candidates to play aside him, though. Renardo Green and Jerry and Jones, two uh, of the starters on the outside last year. I tend to be more partial to Renardo Green, but Jerry and Jones has obviously stuck around in Azaria Thomas uh, after his freshman season last year in there as well. And then Greedy Vance in the slot where he succeeded down the stretch last year. If you had to set the lineup, you know, for LSU, Central uh, Cypress on one side, who do you go and the other side? I think it's green, but check back with me tomorrow at about 12.05, and I may have a different answer. Why is that? Just because another day of practice? Yes. Could be, it, that's yes. all it takes? Jack, what do you think? It, I would I would put my money on green, uh, Renardo. But um, what I think is interesting is AZ probably has is probably going to get a solid amount of reps between in that rotation, and that's probably your starting corner potentially alongside Fentrell, depending on what he does going to next season. Which I would see the corner as all of a sudden as a huge strength Absolutely. for the team. Absolutely, uh, Thomas Zaria, a a true sophomore now. I think it is to get that much playing time as he did last year as a true freshman. That was. Uh, very impressive. They had another uh, high-caliber freshman cornerback that didn't get playing time and ended up transferring to Texas A&M, so uh, Thomas beating him out. So they've got a lot, lots of guys in, in that room as well. And then the other one I know, Andrew, that you've been uh, fairly attentive to and something that a lot of people want to know, so we're glad that you're there asking those questions. But the kicker battle, I don't, well, based on what we've heard, I don't know that it is a battle or not much that they'll tell us, but you've got Ryan Fitzgerald. Uh, who has been in this program for a few years against Tyler Keltner, the transfer from East Tennessee State. He went to high school probably 10 minutes from where we're broadcasting this show at uh, Childs High School here in Tallahassee. So those are really the two. I know they have others on the roster, but, I mean, it seems like they've all pretty much made their kicks. Have you been able to tell a difference? Maybe one guy's better from a certain distance, or maybe one guy has power, one guy has accuracy. What's the angle with Keltner v. Fitzgerald? It's a virtual dead heat right now. We're, we're talking like uh, presidential election type deal. And just like the presidential election, there's a lot of posturing going on to where we have we don't know how it's going to shake out. And I don't think we'll know it, um until even during the season, I'm not sure. If one of them starts struggling, the other guy's going to get a shot. Uh, Keltner clearly has a strong leg, uh, but we have not seen him make the big kick. We haven't seen him go out, you know, homecoming day against Wake Forest. Uh, <laughs> game on the line several times. Yeah. It's... Uh and, and you say that if one guy is not performing well during the season, they may go to the other guy. With what we've seen with Fitzgerald, it seems like it's it's a mental game with him, and, and I don't want to speak, obviously, for him. I'm not in his head. I don't know for sure what's going on, but it seems like he's got all the physical tools. He was one of the best kicking prospects out of high school, um, but just hasn't put it together. He was 12 of 20 last year kicking field goals, 60%. So that's close to 50-50. Close to that's not at all where you want to be. He was 0 for 3 uh, from 50 yards or further. And then Keltner, you look at what he did at East Tennessee State, he was 74% in even more kicks than Fitzy had. So the numbers are there, but like you said, if you're in a packed house, like if you're in Death Valley or if you're in Orlando week one, it's just not a guy who has seen that that type of scene. How much that matters, I well, have no idea. Yeah. Well, Keltner made a couple kicks 
on a road game at Miami. So okay. he definitely is not prepared for a hostile <laughs> home uh, environment. <laughs> he probably saw more at, at the Citadel with their 10,000-seat stadium than he did when he was at uh, Miami Gardens. That's fantastic. He also had, Keltner did, three makes last year of 47 or further, like 48, 49, where Fitzy didn't as much. So, you know, at least to me it seemed like maybe Keltner had the accuracy and I said, well, does he have the power? Let's go and check. It seems like he's got even better power than Fitzgerald does. So to me, it seems like Keltner is the guy, but you have Fitzgerald who's been there. And uh, I think that's one of those where we really will have to see who lines up for the first field goal against LSU. I think that's when we'll know. They both played, I think, three or four college seasons each. Uh, Fitzgerald, 65% career. Keltner, 75% in his career. So to give you a little bit larger of a sample size. So if you're just joining us here midway through the hour, listening to Tomahawk Talk on 89.7 FM, WVFS, Tallahassee, William Haynes, Andrew Cheney, and Jack Oliaro. been talking about uh, Florida State football fall camp. We will transition now, staying with the sport and with the topic in general, but uh, changing gears a little bit to conference realignment because we have some more news. This is something we've covered a ton on this show over the years as this picture has slowly started to take form it was kicked off really uh in in earnest when usc and ucla bolted for the big 10 and the pac-12 has continued to crumble since then we've got some more news within the last couple of weeks or so the pac-12 now down to just four teams as now joining USC and UCLA in the Big Ten will be Oregon and Washington. That brings the Big Ten to 18 teams and four of them out on the West Coast. And then as well, Arizona, Arizona State, Utah, and Coach Prime Colorado moving to the Big 12, which will bring them to 16 teams in 2024 after Texas and Oklahoma make their departure to the SEC. So that just leaves Cal, Oregon State, Stanford, and Washington State. Uh, Before we get into the implications that involves the ACC or Florida State, I think let's just hit on this. I think this is the first time since this all began that we can officially declare that a conference is dead. I mean, legitimately, the Pac-12 is gone, never to be seen or heard from ever again. Is there a world where they call themselves just Pac and try to piece it together? (laughs) Uh, No, it is the death of West Coast football, and that is immensely sad um, for us being East Coasters for the most part. Um, ever, I think everyone's going to miss uh, having your 10:30 game, watching in their primes, your and having an Oregon USC game, having a game that even that I wasn't even old enough to like, maybe even make it through the whole game. I'm just going to miss those, uh, miss those types of football games, and uh, I think it's it's a it's a huge loss for the sport. Against regionality is part of the, one of the reasons why we love the sport so much. ACC, SEC, all that stuff. So that it, part of Part of it's dying a little bit, and part of it had dies. Just now, it's sort of we just saw one of we just saw teams that we had cared about move on. So, for the sake of money, which makes complete and total sense, but I can't help but feel bad for the likes of the Wazoo. Can't help but feel bad for uh, Oregon State. Just all those other teams who probably don't have a future in pack or in uh, Power Five football, and that this was just kind of their death sentence in a sense to playing a. a I guess group of five, group of six, whatever it's going to be now. Because uh, even in a playoff sense, if they, if they try to revive it, 
it's it's over in a sense. Even if they try to add teams, they've lost their credibility as a power five. So where does that keep them? That just it's it's uh, it's pretty disappointing. It's pretty sad. Yeah, there was a quote I can't recall from who, but I heard for the first time ever power four. So I mean everything, all the terminology, all the verbiage, everything we've come to know is is going to change. And I got a feeling there's well not a feeling, but there's a sense that it. Power four won't even be lasting that long of a word before it becomes power two. Before it becomes the ultimate countdown in an ESPN Fox uh, world that we live in. It seems to be headed that way. And as you talk about the TV part of this sport, where now basically every decision is made around television revenue. I was reading a story today when the Pac-12 signed their their media deal in the 2012-13 year. They had the biggest. Um, each team got the biggest uh, check out of any other league in the country, even ahead of, like, the SEC, say. And that deal was applauded at the time. Uh, And as the years went on, that deal turned pretty sour, and they couldn't get out of it. And there were talks of them making a deal with Apple TV and all this other crazy business that probably would have even been more of a headache. But they end up falling behind, and that was around the same time that the Big Ten Network launched. So everything has basically been headed in that direction since then. And now they've lost all their best teams, really USC and UCLA starting it off and Oregon and Washington following them to the Big Ten, really sealing that fate and all the other smaller schools, I think, just saw the writing on the wall and uh, leaving the even smaller schools behind and Cal and Stanford trying now to come to the ACC, which makes absolutely zero sense considering I think every team in the ACC is, what, two or three hours away from the Atlantic Ocean and they're going to play the teams on the coast. Neither did USC playing Rutgers. So yeah, it's just that's true. It's, it's absolutely true. Now, there's a deadline tomorrow, August fifteenth, and that is for any team in the ACC to inform the conference that they will be moving for the twenty twenty four academic year. So I think that deadline is pretty much come and gone. I guess we've got a, a few more hours. I don't know what part of tomorrow it is, but I, they would have already had to call some sort of meeting to get that done. But it's it's worth discussing in that maybe Florida State, as well as Clemson, maybe making their move uh, not this year but next year, kind of setting the table. The Big Ten seems like has been where all the heat of the discussion has been. It seemed like maybe last summer there was the SEC, but I think they're they're set – where they're at now with Texas and Oklahoma, and, and they've got 16 teams for 2024. Richard McCullough, the Florida State University president, made some comments at a board of trustees meeting uh, recently, and I'll, I'll give a quote from him here. He says, I believe that FSU will have to at some point consider very seriously leaving the ACC unless there were a radical change to the revenue distribution and as it stands right now, there was a story today by Nicole Auerbach in The Athletic that Florida State is making the same per year from the revenue distribution from the ACC as Boston College currently is. And obviously that's where Florida State has the issue. They feel if they're winning all the ball games and they're drawing all the views on television, right, they should be getting more money. But if you're other schools in the ACC, why on earth would you agree to that? So that kind of puts everyone at a standstill. Yeah, until Florida State has legitimate leverage because they don't stand a threat of leaving the conference right now. They don't have a clear way to get out of the grant of rights. The other teams aren't going to go along with any of their admittedly unfair to the other te- in the other team's minds requests. 
Uh, but if Florida State were to somehow present a viable option for leaving, then the situation changes. But at, by that point, Florida State would not stay in the conference. I think it's it's going to be interesting. Now, I, I think we all agree that Florida State probably won't probably is not going to move in 24 but we put up a poll on you know put up a poll recently and people would be more interested in the sec because that at least saves some sort of the regionality because now with the travel that thing of joining the big 10 where you have to play conference games there's there is a road and there is a possibility that you could have a road game a conference road game at oregon and next week go to rutgers like that is a world that that is possible in so the blueprint for them to stay, I, I'm not quite sure it's, or for them to stay in the conferences, it's, it's more than likely to happen. Uh, they have to get private equity involved, as we've seen, and uh, it, unless something develops in the next few hours, it would seem that this is more than likely just a flash in the pan, and uh, we'll see what happens from there. It seems like all the talk lately has been the teams that are going to be leaving the ACC. Well, all of a sudden, we have talks of teams potentially joining the ACC, which I never would have thought before the, the Pac-12 imploded in on itself, Cal and Stanford uh, from the from now the Pac-4, and also SMU over in Texas have all been discussed lately as additions to the ACC. Now 12 of the current 15 teams in the conference would have to vote yes to push those through. And Florida State, Clemson, no, uh, North Carolina State, and UNC have all voted no. So there's, we're only one vote away from somebody. If someone can talk NC State or UNC into a yes vote, then this whole thing could be a whole lot different because, as we just talked about, Florida State getting the same piece of the pie as Boston College does. Well, if you add maybe, say, all three of these schools or maybe two of them, well, that piece of the pie gets even smaller than it already is. Florida State is already unacceptable with the piece of pie they're getting, and if you're going to make it even smaller, I think that, that just accelerates the move, right? Well, yes, and the interesting thing is UNC uh, has publicly come out against Florida State's groaning about their attempts to leave, they're barking about their attempts to leave the conference, but UNC is in the same position as Florida State where there's someone that brings a lot of revenue into the conference and they don't feel like they're getting their due. Because what, what value does, to, not to make it, what, what, do, what does Cal and Stanford actually add to the conference? I think SMU would be actually a quality. They've kind of been viewed as the team in waiting to be a Power 5 in, in a world where a realignment didn't happen. They would sort of be viewed as a potential Big 12 team or something like that. Plus having ACC out in Texas would do something for the media, get them at least out there and expanding. Um, so I don't see it as likely. I don't, I don't know why. There's no reason FSU, Clemson, or any of them would agree to that, to cut more out of their pie, because I think the only one that has potential for value is SMU, and can anyone name anything that Cal has Stanford done? I remembered Stanford football in 2012. That was fun, and Cal had Aaron Rodgers, but other than that, what have you showed for me recently? Those two programs are in a lot different of a place than they were maybe, say, 10 years ago when they were actually viewed to be competitive, and, and really, I the only thing that those two schools bring to the table now would be academics, which if you want to use a word that we've used earlier in the show is posturing. I think that the conferences will always say, well, well, academics are very important to us. We need to have that sort of prestige and we need people to look at us this type of way that, you know, we take academics first and foremost. And then the checks start getting handed out. And then all of a sudden the conversation is completely changed. So I, I question the authenticity from that point. Is it about the money or is it about the prestige? 
and I know everyone would like to have their cake and eat it too, but this is one of those situations where you can really have only one or the other because financially, for any school in the ACC, I would assume Cal and Stanford makes no sense. Could you imagine the look on Dabo Sweeney's face when you tell him that his team is going to have to take a cross-country flight in, the, in October to go out to the West Coast? He would be fuming. Smoke would come out of his ears. Well, he has no interest in that type of game. Dabo Sweeney would have to walk through San Francisco. He would have to see San Francisco. I'm not sure he could keep his head on. No, he would he would lose his uh, his country mind, that's for sure. And that that's kind of where we're at now. None of these moves make any sense. Yet we're talking about them because they are completely viable as far as actually happening. Like I said, 11 of the 15 teams are on board. They only need 12 to actually push it through. So by the time we're in these chairs next week, we could be having that discussion of some new teams in the ACC, which is crazy. It seems the report now is FSU is going to stand pat. Uh, their earliest move, if they wait for the past the deadline, is going to be 2025. And they feel like every year that they wait, they are falling behind another $30 million behind Big Ten and SEC teams. That's what they have said uh, on the record. So one more year, how much difference does it make? Maybe not too much, uh, but they're going to take the next 365 days, it looks like, and put together a game plan on how they're going to make their exit because as far as the dollar signs go, there's a lot going into that. $120 million for the exit fee alone, and uh, that's a lot of that's a lot of uh, dinero. And on top of that, the grant of rights buyout, which is uh, a little tricky, essentially – until 2036, which is the grant of rights deal that all the teams in the conference signed a while back, the ACC owns rights of every FSU home game until you know the next 13 years are over, and that's the same for every ACC team. And that makes it difficult because what's the value that the uh, Seminoles bring to the SEC or Big Ten? It's those home games. It's those TV rights. And if the ACC owns them, that kind of gets in the way. But I don't think we've seen a definitive number on what it would take to buy out of it. Apparently, legal experts have said that it's ironclad. I don't know enough in that world to make any kind of ruling on it one way or the other. But the bottom line is it's very tricky and it's going to be difficult to do. So this is the world we're in now where Florida State is working with J.P. Morgan Chase to raise capital from institutional investors like banks and uh, hedge funds and things of that sort. And also private equity firm 6th Street is involved in discussions. Basically, what I could read from this is these are institutions that could give Florida State some money up front to pay the exit fee to maybe work out some sort of grant of rights buyout. And then these these financial institutions would uh, get some money back in future TV revenue if Florida State is going to be making money hand over fist in the SEC or Big Ten, and they can just give the kickbacks from the people that uh, they got the money from. But this is uh, this is very peculiar. This is not really something that's been done, so uh, it's very unique in that right. Well, yes, and here's another element. If Florida State were to enter such an agreement and fail to pay back the loan adequately, the athletic program would be owned by J.P. Morgan. They could take control, <laughs> and you could be pulling up, you know, to uh, – the, uh, that new football facility, and uh, you could uh, see the BlackRock logo on there. You could hear about uh, the need for uh, DEI and in investing within the program. 
Yeah, a foreclosed sign outside of Doe Campbell Stadium. That would be a, a very sad sight indeed. And that uh, kind of in that uh, that breath, this is a, a tight line t- uh, to walk. And again, I don't know enough to make a ruling here either. But the athletic department under Florida law, they're allowed to be a separate nonprofit from the university, but they still have to maintain their tax exempt status, obviously, as the way nonprofits are. So as far as taking money in from investors and how they're distributing their revenue and all those things, that could be a little bit tricky. And uh, these obviously are not the conversations that we would like to have about Florida State sports. It's about the, the play on the field. But all of a sudden, this is coming up because, like I said, I'll reiterate this, FSU feels like they are falling behind $30 million every year to those uh, SEC and Big Ten teams. And it's always been an arms race in this sport, even before NIL. It was about who had uh, the coolest water slide in their practice facility or who had the best water beds in the locker room or whatever kind of nonsense uh, you can put your money behind. That's what it's always been about. So money rules all, and uh, Florida State financially will fall behind the longer they stay in the ACC. Inarguable. Yeah. And it now becomes a question, I think, not of if rather than when. And I think 2025 seems to be uh, that target point. Uh, Boosters are also something that could come into play uh, in that Nicole Auerbach story in The Athletic. I believe it was referenced um, some figure in Florida State basically saying that the the dollar sign figure behind the grant of rights buyout is not a concern. They feel like they can get the money one way or the other to do it. But like Andrew said, paying it back is going to be one thing. And I mean, history repeats itself. Does it not? You know, all those TV deals that were signed 10 years ago that everyone thought was genius and the best idea ever. And they ended up collapsing in on themselves. Who's to say that that's not going to happen again with these deals. So nothing is ever a guarantee. Uh, But they're going to have to make a decision because they're going to get left in the dust if not. And I think probably the closest new update we'll get at some point is going to be Cal, Stanford, SMU, or any of these teams admitted to the ACC. That'll be the next step in uh, where we go. So the last bit of the show, want to change over sports now to Florida State soccer. Again, you can call the show up 850-644-1837. We're on until 8 o'clock with new release. But... Their season is starting here very shortly. They already had an exhibition game in Orlando against UCF. I don't even I haven't seen a score. It was probably so hot there that I don't know. I saw one fan on Twitter they were asking like was there a score and the fan was like, "Well, I left at halftime because it was way too hot." According to both social medias, uh, one goal was recorded on UCF side and one goal was uh, recorded on the FSU side. So at the very least two goals were scored. A winner or loser is unknown. That's too bad. That's a, an exhibition and a tie. How do you like that? Uh, double whammy. But Florida State Soccer will take the field for a game that goes down in the record books for the first time on Thursday night in Aggieland uh, against Texas A&M. Uh, that, that'll be on the SEC Network. They won't get a home game for a little while. It won't be until uh, September 3rd. And I got a feeling there won't be a lot of people in Tallahassee that day, so... It's about five hours before the LSU game kicks off in Orlando. If we loosely want to call it um, the Florida Florida game, Florida Florida State game, it would be that next Sunday. 
and uh, that would be September 10th at 3.30. So it's going to be still about a month until we see some home matches, but you can watch them on TV. And it seems to be that they're in pretty good shape. They're ranked number six in the United Soccer Coaches Poll preseason. And wouldn't you know, four out of the five teams ahead of them are in the ACC in descending order, uh, UNC, Notre Dame, Duke, and UVA. And I think three of those are on the schedule in the regular season at least. And you'll probably see them all in the postseason at some point or another. They're coming off a 17-3-3 season with another ACC championship in the books and a Final Four appearance in the Women's College Cup. In year one of Brian Penske, we had him on this very program, I think, Basically, this exact time in August last year, kind of introducing him to uh, this program and and everything that he was going to do to put it together. He was a coach of the year in the SEC with Tennessee, and it looked like he was taken very well to this program and this conference, as difficult as it is to navigate. He inherited a fantastic roster for Mark Kerkorian, and a lot of those players are still sticking around. For my money, I really haven't seen a better goalkeeper than Christina Roquet. She returns for a senior season. Uh, Lalani Nesbeth in the midfield, Jody Brown at forward, uh, Lauren Flynn, most likely their center back starting, Rana Wai, another midfielder, and Oni Echigini, also a junior, and Biet Olsen. So basically all the all the key cogs are, are back. The team is um, younger yet still feels definitely not younger, young, like not too young, but it's younger. It's got an injection of youth. I mean, the seven years of Claire Robbins has now come to an end. You have some people graduating, transferring, and whatnot, but it more so seems like this is a newer cast of characters. It's a little more unknown than I would say, but they have enough around them to think that there is not a year where... They, I don't think they haven't been out of the top 15 in the, really almost in this century. So there isn't really much concern. You get, you need to see what these younger players and these transfers have done, like the likes of Jordan, du- Jordan Dudley is a freshman who's represented the U.S. at multiple categories, and she seems to be the real deal at forward. Lily Farkas was a huge addition out of Michigan. Taylor Huff actually spent time with um, with Coach in Tennessee. She spent a year there and is now flocking over to Tallahassee. Uh, Claire Rain as well. That's two Tennessee, Tennessee players. Um, I, I kind of think of the situation almost like Ryan Day, where he inherited a, a quality program, and granted it was just one year thus far, but it seems like the ball is going to keep heading that direction, and there isn't a lot unless the ACC gets better. Which, hey, maybe F- maybe FSU wants to stay in the ACC for the uh, the the women's soccer conference, if you want to call it that, in a world where we're six, and that is that still blows my mind. But I think this team is going to get better. It's going to be tougher. It's going to be stiffer competition. Uh, but in terms of NCAA tournament play. There isn't a situation where I don't see them at least getting back to the quarterfinals, if not the College Cup semifinals again, which they've now done three straight years. Uh, but the youth will be observed. The defense that was full of freshmen last year and still performed very well. Uh, Mia Justice was a goalkeeper who kind of swapped minutes with Christina Roquet. She's transferred to Texas. Uh, they have a freshman go- uh, goalkeeper who I don't think will see too much action, so it will be the Christina Roquet show, as it has been in previous years, and the stats show she has been one of the most dominant goalkeepers not in this program's history but in really conference play no doubt about that great team returning and you're right about that i think for brian penske he there was a lot of momentum behind this program when he took over and all you got to do is just ride that wave and if you keep winning like they do the recruits will keep coming and 
that'll keep building in on itself. And you give him obviously a lot of credit too, because he's earned it. He's done a fantastic job, a great staff behind him that continues to grow. I know they just added another one to the official staff and of all the players that are staying, there are some on their way out. You mentioned Claire Robbins uh, matching Dimitri Emanuel's uh, seven seasons in uh, uh, in college athletics. Jenna Nyswong are also on the way out uh, from from graduation. And Mia Justice, who had played a couple of seasons, she transferred to Texas and what, about 15 or 20 starts as a goalkeeper over the last two years. That's not nothing, obviously, Christina Roquet, could start every game, I think, if you need her to. Granted, if she stays healthy, that's the biggest piece, and that's what she's done through her first three seasons here in Tallahassee, so that would be the indication. But the only other goalkeeper that they're carrying on the roster is a true freshman in Adeline Todd. She was a three-time first-team All-State in high school in the state of Colorado. Uh, and granted, Christina Roque was a true freshman when, when she first started play, so it's not to say that you can't have a great – uh, goalkeeper that young but uh, it is a little thin at that position than it was you would say compared to last year what it always comes down for me like say if we're we're talking to any of you out there that maybe don't watch this program a ton or you're trying to get into it or just looking at it from a, a 50,000 point uh, foot view it usually always comes down to how Florida State plays against UNC and that it, basically if any program in the country wants to win a title you have to get through the University of North Carolina at some point went one and two against them last year all the games were decided by one goal and yeah every, every single one had high stakes everyone was every single game was intense um there's no reason to think that that game shouldn't be the same level of intensity or just another acc championship rematch uh depending on what the likes of notre dame and duke can bring back but and that game is in chapel hill that is going to start a series of a difficult schedule at the end of september and then october you have three straight top 15 games two of which are at home so be on the lookout uh hosting likes of notre dame notre dame spanked them 0-4 in uh south bend last year uh pitt was someone that fsu had a handle on duke is always a quality outfit that's always a 50 50 game they're not playing virginia for the first time which seems like forever miami um they're not ranked but they've they had a really fight it was a 1-0 game last year i wouldn't put it past them to put up a fight again it's going to be a difficult slate. This team has the capability to do so and has proven so. I don't see why they can't do what they previously done. But I will say, I think this team is maybe a piece or two away in previous years. But part of it's I need to see what these youngsters do, what these freshmen add to the team. So yeah. it's just a wait and see. Want to uh, circle back quickly to the North Carolina thing. Our conversation with Brian Penske last year, he mentioned, and this I'd never heard really anything like this before. He said one of the biggest motivators for him to take this job is he wanted a battle against Anson Dorrance, the head coach of UNC, one of the best and most decorated coaches in college sports ever. In his 50 years there, he's got 20 championships. UNC has a handle on women's soccer like most maybe Alabama as it does on football historically. It's nonstop championship. It's nonstop competitiveness. Florida State's a recent up-and-comer, kind of the same way. Um, but, yeah, it's unbelievable what they've done and what they will probably still continue to do. It's a factory that just outputs players that end up in high national status, whether it's in the NWSL or representing it, you know, the current World Cup right now. So Florida State and UNC will play in Chapel Hill September 24th. That's a Sunday at noon. They'll most likely meet in the ACC championship, and they'll most likely meet 
in the NCAA tournament. Well, just for one note, as we have learned from Florida State baseball, though, nothing can be taken for granted. You play one game at a time. You play a full regular season. I think a couple sports have taught us that this past year. I think basketball taught us that as well. There is a couple sports that have not treated us well. But women's sports, I mean, softball had this. Soccer is somewhat to the same sentiment. They're high-quality teams that continue. No matter what pressure you put on them, they seem to consistently perform. Knocking on wood, whatever wood's around us, I'm going to find it, knock it in a sec. But there's no reason to think that this team is not another quality outfit, another fun watch. So Florida State will be at Texas A&M on the soccer pitch Thursday at 8. SEC Network, Texas A&M 9-7-5 last year. And they'll also be at number 9 TCU Sunday night at 8. That's on ESPN+. We'll be back next Monday night at 7 o'clock to talk about those games, talk about more Florida State football. It's been great to be with you here on the great 89-7 here in Tallahassee for William Haynes, uh, Andrew Cheney, and Jack Oliaro saying so long for now. This has been Tomahawk Talk. Coming up is Casey with... New release, you're listening to WVFS Tallahassee, the voice of Florida State.